Welcome to Counter Stories, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I share are strictly my own and should not be impugned to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendro's Group. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. You know, as we go forward in, in our journey in life, uh, we are faced with uh, many set of circumstances that can be triggering to us with regard to grief. And certainly as BIPOC folks, we know that we tend to carry more trauma uh, as lived experiences, whether childhood experiences that are triggered by current events or just current events and current experiences that we are living as adults. I'd like to invite folks to think about and talk about and share what your feelings have been overall, how grief shows up with us in, in whatever lived experiences that we are currently facing. Uh, for me, myself, I think um, most folks know that I lost my sister to uh, a long battle with brain cancer earlier this year, and that has weighed heavy on my mind, and I continue to try to grieve and heal from that. Uh, but most recently this weekend, uh, a good friend of mine relayed to us that uh, her 33-year-old daughter had been killed. Um, it appears to be a domestic violence situation here in the metro area, and that is still weighing heavy on me. And then just two days ago, I was at a funeral service uh, for a friend um, who lived a long life, 93 years old. Uh, she'd been a judge uh, in um, Ramsey County, the second judicial district. And I'm still healing from that. And, and the service itself, I went to the memorial service and it was beautiful, but it also was very triggering. So the last couple of weeks have been just a, a time of grief for me in various ways, uh, whether triggered by the Supreme Court decisions and, and triggering the various grief that, that uh, is showing up in my body related to that, but then also the examples I just shared. So our, our producer had invited us to, to come up with um, a discussion on, on this, and I, I just really resonated with that. So I'm inviting you all in, in, into the space to talk about it. Um, I'll start by saying that I've been, I'm almost done with listening to Michelle Obama's second book, The Light We Carry. And that book has been really meaningful for me. She wrote it during the pandemic and she talks about the, the weight of the pandemic on, on us as communities, but more so BIPOC folks. And, you know, some of the, the takeaways for, for me from her book I'll share just really briefly before we jump into the discussion, that research has shown that those who are happier in life are more likely to take action on our social issues than their less happy peers, which reinforces the idea that it's okay to tend to your well-being with the same vigor that you bring to your fiercest convictions. And for me, that really resonated with me because I think about it's so easy for us to sit in our grief it becomes paralyzing. I'll speak for myself. It will become paralyzing. And then we don't know what to do to get out of it. 
And she talks about the power of small, doing small things, small endeavors to not only guard our happiness, but to then also increase our happiness and keep us going um, and allow us then to absorb the gift of getting something done that brings us joy, brings us joy in our heart and being able then to say to ourselves, you know, that's one step closer to our healing and it's it's one step closer to re-energizing ourselves to be able to then continue to move forward in whatever way you're doing, whether it's because of a loss of a life of a family member or a dear one or a monumental weight that we're feeling on our shoulders that our democracy is moving backward uh, 50, 60, 80 years, you know, back, depending on the the issues that you are are holding in your heart. So I want to open it up um, and ask all, you know, how is how are you feeling and 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 how how do you manage grief and how do you process it? Uh, and where does it sit with you in terms of your body? Where do you hold that? Um, and invite folks to just be vulnerable. I mean, the other part of this all is that as BIPOC folks, we don't always get a chance to slow down and think about and reflect on these heavy, heavy issues and be in community with each other, but also support. And us, in my mind, us sharing this with each other here and also with our listeners really ends up being something that allows us to understand that we're in here together. For, I mean, for me, it's something that... I don't think I talk about enough. There are people that I miss every day that things remind me of them, right? Um, and then I, and I think about them, but I don't talk about them. And, and I don't talk about missing them on this particular day or, or thinking of them. Um, and that's probably not good for me to hold it all inside. But at the same time, it also feels really personal. Um, so then I do hold it inside. So I guess like I'm not the best at, at grieve, grieving. Um, may, maybe because when, when someone in our community dies, um, it takes so long before we do the funeral. And I'm usually stuck in the kitchen. Right. Um, and so it's busy. It's busy, 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 busy. It's get this meal out, get this out, get this out. And you, I almost look forward to that. So I don't have to like face my grief because then I'm busy and I have like a job to do. Um, but at the same time, it, for, it forces me to not face my grief, which is like a double-edged sword. Just to help people understand our listeners, for folks who are unfamiliar with Hmong culture and how um, the Hmong culture then honors uh, folks who have passed on to the to the other life, can you unpack that for folks who understand then when the service is held and what goes into it and things of that sort? I, I know we've probably talked about it a, a while back, but maybe for folks who are unfamiliar with that. 
Yeah, our funerals um, usually take a month or two after um, the person has passed and are usually multiple days long um, and are, are very large. So there's, there's usually two rooms, one where um, it's the food is being held, it's social, and there's another room um, where the body is and there's music um, and there's eulogies on that side. There's, a, there's an agenda for every day. Um, it's a lot of planning on the family's part. Um, it's a lot of money um, that each family has to put towards such a funeral. It, it's it's become a topic in our community about, you know, having super fancy funerals. Like, um, you know, how are we putting this burden on our children to throw us these long, expensive um, funerals and how we can approach that moving forward. So that's a community. That's like a, a conversation that's been happening in community for a while. Um, just you know, the difficulties it is storing a body for a month in a, in of itself, right? Is is a lot. Um, so our funerals cost a lot of money, and it it does fall on the family. I I there's a lot of GoFundMe's. You'll see that a lot, especially if it's a young person. Um, who, you know, nobody expected that, you know, the 30-year-old to die in a car accident. Um, so nobody was prepped or had a fund f set up to pay for that funeral, which could be, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. So, you know, that's a little bit of information about, like, how we honor um, the folks who, who pass in our community. Um, we feed everybody constantly. It's open door. Um, so there's always food coming out of the kitchen. Um, and there is like, kind of like a mother of the kitchen, um, like position that is uh, like assigned to someone. And that person then comes to, uh, like us, the more the, the younger folks. And is like, okay, you know, come on Saturday, you have to help us make food. And then it, it turns out like our summers and our weekends are often taken up by going to these funerals for long amounts of time. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad. Like, you don't want to be like, I don't want to be at this funeral for three days. At the same time, it's like this person has passed and we do want to honor them in our traditional way. So I think that's the complication that people face. At the same time, there are a lot of things that happen at a funeral that we're told is traditional and that's tradition, but we're not told why, because everybody's working. So it's like, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to burn this. We're going to do this. And it's like, okay, but why do we do that? Like, just do it. Just do it. It's like, okay, like it's not explained to us what's behind all of these things. And so there's just like a little bit of a disconnect, but it's like we want to honor the, the dead. At the same time, we don't, don't want to spend three days and, and 15 grand. On, on doing that. Well, <laughs> uh, on the, on the money side, that's, that's 15, 20, 30 grand. I mean, just being a, you know, clergy myself and having to walk with families through the funeral process. I mean, those, those prices are, are, are a thing, you know, that's, that's about what you, what you go and hit. If you do everything the way you want, you know, or the way you think is, is standard, and sometimes it can even go even higher than that. Um, but the thing that that struck me is the way 
especially as we are grieving, our cultural traditions can can be ways for us to kind of, um, what's the word, um, you know, kind of offload some of the momentum, right? If you think of, of, of grief as this walk through a phase and a stage where you've got all these emotions to process and deal with. And, and a lot of times, especially if the death is tragic, I'm, I'm in between two funerals right now. I did one on Saturday and I'll be officiating another one, a very tragic one for a young person on, on, on this coming Saturday. And it's been interesting to see the, um, the cultural traditions kind of, kind of work as kind of a conveyor belt in some way, shape, you know, in, in a, for lack of a better term, that keeps you moving along some stages that if you had to be the one to muster yourself through, you might stay, you might stop, you know, and it's, um, you know, I think about our own cultural tradition space where, you know, we have these moments of telling stories because there's a there's some point in which the grief has to translate to the memory as the person goes on to become uh, one of the ancestors. Right. These are folks who have gone before us, who who we we honor, at least in my family tradition space. We you know, we honor folks and you move from 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 life to to community with ancestors. And so. You know, in order to honor and move that memory through, a lot of our practices are centered around getting us to the point where we can live in and through the stories that we tell of a person. And, and you'll see it even in the funerary rites where African cultural traditions and African-American cultural traditions blend um, with, um, it's weird to say this, Christian cultural traditions just because it, we're, we're talking about Eurocentric Christian traditions that we have kind of, you know, taken and try to remorph, even though the origins of that faith are Afro-Asiatic, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, and so we see a lot of storytelling in our tradition space, you know, storytelling with the family, then the, then the funeral itself or the, the memorial itself is centered around, you know, curated stories being told. And even the message to the family is around how we honor the memories going forward. Um, it used to be that we would sit with the body the night before and we would tell stories watching over the body so that nothing or no entity comes in and tries to, to um, you know, take this in a, in a different direction. So there's, there's things like that in addition to the food and all those things that serve to be touch points for us to do the work of trying to transition to a space where we honor in memory. And that is, that's the goal. Like that's the, the that's it kind of unofficially the the goal that folks get together to try to do in a lot of our our practice and so I, I'm struck by by you know laying out Lee as I watch you or listen to you lay out some of those steps being in the kitchen and how you say sometimes you know you like that because it, uh, it 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 struck me because a lot of times I look at that as dealing with the grief that's a way we allow our traditions and our and our rituals to walk us through when our feet won't do it for us because we're because we're because because we are grieving and so it's kind of like letting out the pressure cooker slowly you know slowly and slowly until until we get enough out to be able to have space to do the processing um being in the kitchen being in the kitchen and, and having weekends where you are going to funerals oftentimes i don't know the person who's passed um it is a a, a distant relative um, so you go and you're there to support the people who are mourning. Um, you take their spot in the kitchen. 
Um, so they can be with the body or they um, can be in the room where the bowing is happening, the bowing is happening, and the, the eulogies are, are read, the stories are told, the music is happening. So, you know, when I say my a lot of our weekends are filled with funerals, it's it's distant relative funerals as well. When I think about at least funerals, the one that comes to mind is the one that we, we couldn't hold. And that was the one that involved the, lo- the loss of my mother. And I think I've talked about that loss, that grief, um, and the fact that we weren't, we weren't able to have a, a traditional gathering send-off for my mother, uh, which is very important. So on the American Indian side, um, unlike what I heard Haley describe for the Hmong, on the American Indian side, a funeral happens quickly. I mean, within three or four days, there we're having a wake and we're having a funeral. Uh, the wake will be <clears throat> very similar to what Anthony described it. It's 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 people just kind of gather. There's food prepared. Usually, the family um, of the uh, deceased is kind of helping put food together, but a lot of the community members come forward and bring food. Um, and it's essentially the same. The uh, it, it, It's a time for those folks to kind of gather, talk. They might share stories of the individual. But again, it, it's also to kind of, you know, ward off the spirits and and keep that that person secure to watch over them prior to the, to the funeral. And then for the actual funeral, there is, there is uh, someone who pr- practices Madei and performs these ceremonies in our various communities will we'll send this person off. It, it's done in, a, in our language, in Anishinaabe. At the end, uh, we'll break it down and explain in English. And it's somewhat of a participatory event where we will get up and we'll offer tobacco to get Jimanadu. About halfway through the journey, the uh, the person who's sending the individual off, um, since it's such a, for them, it's a two, three-day journey, but um, they need to sit and eat. And when they sit and eat, then we um, that are there will eat. So we'll eat a meal um, shared with the individual who's on their journey. Um, and then after that meal, the ceremony closes up. Now, on my father's side, uh, much like what Anthony described, oftentimes when I would return to Des Moines uh, when someone passed, it was a time for the family to gather, a time for us to reflect. Um, Always food. Always food. I mean, there's always food involved with this. Beforehand and after, um, and I think the one thing that that uh, that I tend to remember most of of these gatherings is that we always comment that the only time we get together as family or extended family is when someone passes. When when it was different when we were younger. We would come together, and I'm beginning to realize that when we got together in Des Moines, Iowa, it was always around the second to third week of June. 
Now, whether that was associated with Juneteenth, I'm not sure because no one really mentioned it, but it was always around that same time. But as we get older, some of those traditions and practices fall to the wayside. And often the only time we get together is when someone passes. So it's a it's a combination where you're dealing with grief of the passing of that individual, but then you're also dealing with the happiness of uh, of enjoy of being around family. And so you're you've got these two conflicting emotions flowing through you because you're sad of the passing of a loved one, but you're happy because you're seeing your extended family. See, Don, that's that's the that's the the essence. Like Luz, as I think about your question, I've heard us all talk about, well, at least so far, <laughs> is is the gathering space, right? And you always talk about us being from collective, collective spaces. But Don, it's that um that shift to joy to me that when we grieve, in, at least in 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 my family space, that's that there's a there's a marker and shift. We always have a sense that all of these emotions and feelings are welcome and invited, and we do them all. We don't we don't sit in a in a binary around it. But there is a marker. There is a point at which everybody who's in a deep state of mourning, um, we often talk about this, right? Mourning, we 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 want to work hard to turn mourning. Um, uh, to move from mourning into memory, into do f- to move from memory into joy, right? Um, but not as as if we stop mourning or we stop like doing something. But, but we know that we have done, we have turned, we have we're in the right zone when we are able to do all of those things, right? When you know, and not stuck all in one space. And so I, I watched this this space of dealing with grief, whether it's grief of losing a loved one, which is the most common thing we think of, but also the ending of relationships, the grief of losing jobs, the grief, there's all kinds of different ways in which grief comes in. And I notice and I watch patterns in my community space of folks trying, you know, looking for that spot in which we're not all the way in one camp or the other. And it looks something like this. If we see somebody who has a reason to grieve and they are just in joy, (laughs) Then we we often talk about waiting. We take this approach of just waiting for that person to come to grips with with the thing that just happened. You know, it just death is such an easy example, but you know, sometimes I'll wait for family members to they'll, you know, they'll be like, I'm good, you know, things, you know, it's tough, but things are going good and they're so positive, so positive. And and I watch my grandmothers, I watch my aunties like just stay close. Cause at some point that person's going to them tears are going to flow. That medicine is going to flow. And you're going to get back into a space that looks, that feels like a more healthy equilibrium. At the same time, we have to sometimes guard the casket because folks get up and try to throw themselves in there. And then out of their grief, they start doing things that you know just ain't right. And you have to just, and we're waiting to get them back to an equilibrium. So I think one of the patterns that I've noticed is, is folks waiting and walking with folks until they get into that space where you're not just doing one thing, you're doing all of the things which feels like health in a lot of our grief response spaces. So glad you pointed out those patterns, Anthony. I've witnessed those. And another one that I would offer is 
at, at least has happened to me a number of times now, is that people don't know what to say or how to support you when you're going through grief. So you may share with a, a good friend uh, that you've had a, a loss in your family, and then all of a sudden they go radio silent. I mean, you don't hear from them for months, weeks, and you're thinking to myself, uh, I'll just say this myself, right? When when I lost my sister on January 31st, I let close folks in my circle know, and you'd be surprised how many people, these are folks who I've known for over 20 years, who have been in my home, I've been in their home, hmm. and it's, you get, I'm sorry, and that's it. And then you, it'll be one friend, it took four months before that person reached back out to me and and said nothing about my grief or check-in or whatever. And I don't blame that person. I'm not judging that person. What I've, and it's happened across various friends, not just that one person. But what I've come to resolve within my own self is that society doesn't do a good job of helping us understand how we should react and support people in our circle who we love during their grief. Somehow, some folks think hands off. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be there. And it really depends on the receiver. For me, um, as a collectivist, I want. I want my people in my life because I want to be in their lives, right? And so my expectation would be at least just check in. I don't. I don't need anything else. Just you know, I. I, I've got you, I've got your back, you know, whatever you need kind of thing. Like two sentences would be enough for me. I'm not asking for a whole lot, but it's it's that disconnect for some people who are completely at odds and don't know what to do or what to say. So that's one observation. And then can we can we jump in there, Luz? And that's because some of us, myself included, um may have been brought up in a way where we're not sure how or what we're supposed to do when mm. we agree. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that is a very difficult thing to hear you say that because I can deeply, well, as deeply as I can care for someone else and be totally stumped on what to do with their grief. And it's not because I don't want to reach out. It's because I don't know if it was really modeled in a positive way for me. And, and when I see others who kind of say the same thing, I'm praying for you, prayers are going up. It, to me, after a while, that, that doesn't seem genuine. You know what I mean? So, so often, I don't I really truly don't know what to say or you know I'll I'll give my briefest condolences and then let someone know that I'm there for them but then after that I may not reach out to allow that individual to have some time to work through so I mean I I think I think and I may not be by myself I think there are many of us who may not know what to this, do. this, you know, right or wrong. This, this actually come, came up, comes up often for me, one, because clergy, part of my role, part of my job oftentimes is to help families figure that piece out. 
right? And, and, and to talk and counsel through that. One of the things that we train around is this idea of ministry and presence. If you think about all the traditions that you even named, Don, and, 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 and all of us have shared as we talk about, you know, a past episode that we were talking about how we do funerals, how we, you know, what our practices are, a lot of it centers around just being present in the space. And one of the things I often help, you know, and tell families as we walk in through is when we get to the what do I say, right? Because we privilege our society around talking about having to have an answer to something, we get away from these cultural practices that we've had forever in a day that just were in the space with folks. I, I, I can recount many, many times when folks were going through things and they would just get together at the house, at somebody's house, and we would just cook. We, we wouldn't necessarily even talk about the thing. Now, sometimes we did. There were spaces where you definitely had the conversation. It wasn't a denial thing. But until somebody's to this place of being at pace, being able to do that, I remember when the family got together and somebody messed up at work, likely in a way that was going to cost them their job. And they said, and all they said was, look, I need to be at somebody's house and I need some food. And and that's all they had to say to know that something was going down. And some of us knew the story. Some of us didn't. But I tell you, when the call went out at three o'clock, by five o'clock, we were at somebody's house. The box of star crunches and ho-hos and folks was putting stuff on the grill. And, and, and there was some eating of feelings. There was some disgusting and processing of feelings. There were games. There were... There, there were some some drinks imbibed, and sometimes somebody did a little too much, and we had to take care of them. Sometimes there were arguments, sometimes there were fights, and all of those things came out. And everybody collectively, whether you believe it's healthy or not, by the end of that thing, folks were to a space where I, you need a ride, though. Like people at one corner of the room, people were problem solving because someone so is definitely going to lose their car after as a result of this. So we need to figure out the ride rotation. And it just happened kind of naturally. And all of it stemmed from just being around. And so a lot of times I just tell folks, like, you know, don't forget your ministry of presence. Just being around. You don't have to say nothing. Just be around. And sometimes somebody's looking for words and they let you know that and you will offer something and it won't ever be. It won't ever be enough. I'm dealing with a situation right now with one of my best friends in the world and, and, and lost lost his daughter, 16 years old in a car crash two weeks ago. She was somebody I saw grow up from knee high to a duck. And we were walking through. What do you say? There is no consolation, right? Um, and and there, is no, there is no formula, no quick fix, no faith quick fix. And I'm saying this as, a, as clergy, right? Because hard things happen and we got to deal with it. There ain't no magic pill. Right. I don't care what you say. And, and our, my faith tradition isn't supposed to be designed as a magic pill, at least in my faith tradition, my version of my faith tradition. But there is a way just to be present and be communal when it goes through that. And so we go on a walk. I'm, I've been walking with the parent. I've just been around. And, and when there's time to joke, it's time to joke. When it's time to cry, it's time to cry. When it's time to sit there and listen to copious amounts of music that remind you of somebody, I grin and bear through that too, even though it's not my genre of music. Ministry of presence is, is one of the most primary ways in which we caretake, but we don't give ourselves credit for it. And people don't give our communities credit for how we do that. I think another big part of, of grief and how we react is, um, and as far as death goes, is 
not being taught about death and how to grieve when you're young. There's a lot of people who are just like, don't, don't, you know, don't tell my child about death. Um, when my dog died and my little niece came up to me and she said, where's Lily? And I didn't know if I should tell her that Lily died because I don't know how my brother and sister-in-law were parenting her. I, so I said, Lily went to live on a farm upstate, like, you know, cause I didn't know. Um, and, and that's been a thing. Like some of my sisters taught their kids very young, what death was and how, and what that means and what happens, you know, and some haven't. And it's been one of those things of like, at what point does your child learn about it when grandpa dies, you know, and it's, this is fresh and new and all of a sudden it's hit them. Or is this something that you try to prep them for? And so they can better learn how to, uh, grieve and, Maybe that's why I have such a problem grieving. Like, I don't know how to. I don't know. I don't think there's a right way to do it, but I do it different every day. You know, I, because I don't know how to. I was never taught really what it was and, and how to deal with it. Yeah, that's exactly the point I was making about how we as a society don't do a good job in talking about grief and how to process it. Uh, one last provocative question, and then I think we can move on, is talking about death um, and preparing for death. I recently uh, watched a TED Talk. The speaker is Alua Arthur. Her first name is spelled A-L-U-A. And her theme is why thinking about death helps you live a better life. Mm. And then she was subsequently interviewed by Dan Harris of the 10% Happier podcast. And what her fundamental message is, rather than running away from death, we should run towards it. And that if we begin to envision what our death looks like, we can not only prepare ourselves and not be in fear of, uh, but also take all the necessary steps to empower our family to process our our death differently, right? And for and instead of it focusing on the destruction and the sadness and the the dark places, that we can actually flip it, right? And she actually says, "Look, I want. I've said to my family, I want them to clap." after I take my last breath, because they are going to celebrate what a fabulous life I have had. And she has it down to, and she tells you during her TED Talk, she's got five steps, and I'm not going to get all the details here. But she says, I don't want to, to be resuscitated. I want to be in my own home. I want this kind of music. I want these folks around me. And so she's very specific. And then she says, I'm going to visualize a sunset, a beautiful sunset and all the vibrant colors. And she begins to create a visual for herself. And rather than fearing the act of death, she's actually embracing and walking towards it. Uh, and she's, she's a recovering lawyer. She was a lawyer in California in legal aid. And was so stressed out and depressed that she took a leave of absence, medically speaking. And then this brought her to this journey. And she's now what's called a death doula. 
I was unfamiliar with that, and maybe mm. that's a segment we can host mm. in the future. There are death doulas here in Minnesota that will help mm-hmm. process that. But what do you folks think about death and how you view your own death, not somebody else's, right? And and how does that land with you? And would you, I mean, just what's your reaction to her approach? I think it's such a, a novel approach. Well, for me, it it tracks a lot better with some of the traditions that my family goes back with, especially with the history through slavery in the United States, where death is, one, they come from communities where death is treated very differently, right? This is that shift between from funeral to celebration of life, right? Where where our ultimate goal is to celebrate the life of somebody because um, one, there's a belief that you go someplace that is better. That's a real belief for me. So when you ask that question for me directly, I'm like, look, um, we use a phrase called moving from labor to reward. And, and so I'm, I want to celebrate the time that was here. I don't, I don't hope for mourning. Now, that being said, you don't have to drag me off this mortal coil, but you know, I'm a claw every single minute I can in this spot. But, um, the view of death is not something that's, that's final. It's not something that is, that, that is a, um, like there's a loss of being in a physical space with somebody, but it, th- th- there's not a spirit loss. And so that's my personal belief space. And so we 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 transition to a different plane and we'll see you when you get there, too. So there's not a there's not a uh, it's, it's, it's not a bane in experience. In fact, it's one where where we celebrate and honor the thing that all of us will have to do at some point. And so I resonate with the with the kind of death doula piece because it it, it actually follows uh my community and my family traditions um now everybody mourns in their different way but especially in terms of of, of moving on celebrate like it's it's it better be a party in fact i want to arrange it so that my my remains and however they're they're celebrated arrive late so it can be true to fashion because I ain't never been on time to nothing in my entire life. <laughs> like so, so, so I look at that with a fond space of being able to know that I'm about to go kick it with some of the ancestors until I see the folks who are, I'm, I'm leaving behind. So that's just where I'm at. Um, we talk about death in in our um, house, just just me and my husband. My parents are of uh, uh, the thought that um don't talk about it it will like it will come closer or somehow talking about it will make it happen you know uh, don't so don't talk about it don't talk about it um my husband is 25 years older than i am and the likelihood that he will pass before i do is high so we have talked about it he has his playlist he knows what he wants a, a big celebration of life he doesn't want any sadness you know um, he knows what he wants uh, when he goes. And it really annoys my parents when we joke about it. Like, I'll joke like, oh, when Jim is dead, I'll be able to do this. Or, you know, I'll be able to do that. That really annoys my parents. Um, but for me, I've always, I've often, um, I've dealt with some mental health issues my whole life. So I, uh, suicide was one of the things that was very prevalent in my life. Um but you know as i'm gaining control over myself um i have talked we've talked a lot about like you know at a certain point you know the quality of life may not be there i don't want to be 95 years old and someone's you know wheeling me around and it has to 
lift me up to go to the bath. You know, like there's a certain point where I'm just like, I don't want to be um, around at that age. And, you know, how could it be like at 90 or 95? I'm just like, oh, I'm out. Like, that's it. Not sad. Right. Not in any sort of sad way, but just in that I, I the quality of life would not be there for me. And it would be paying somebody a lot of money to have to try to care for my frailing self. Um, whereas, you know, if, if there was a way in some at some point, whether it's in, you know, Portland or whatever, and then to be able to distribute, know when it's happening and distribute what I have left in the way that I want it to be done um, and say goodbye, not in a sad way, but in a happy way. I don't know if that makes sense or if that sounds like terrible. No, that makes sense. I think that. Uh, yeah, absolute sense. Good old, good old, good old lose always pulls. <laughs> <laughs> pulls this stuff out it this last one i think this is a little bit more difficult um because as i sit here and i think about that death i'm afraid of death i'm afraid to think of death but but then not necessarily all the time um because as I look, as I progress through life, and I'm kind of at a point where I'm kind of on the back end as opposed to the front end. And um, so, you know, periodically we'll have discussions or, or try to talk about it. I mean, I think part, part of the difficulty about death for me is <clears throat> since I've been part of three different cultures and there are two two of which tend to believe well all three tend to believe in some some form of afterlife i however am one of those individuals who tends to overthink sometimes and overthink <laughs> when it comes to this i definitely fall victim to this overthinking on whether or not there isn't uh, uh, an afterlife or a part of me just says, when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. You know, story over, no reincarnation, no nothing, just, you know, that that's it. And so I think sometimes it's this overthinking that sometimes will paralyze me when I think about my own death. Now, I have, we have, you know, we have, I have put things in order. So, you know, one thing that I know we, we have talked about is, is oftentimes when family passes, um, when we're dealing with that grief and we're dealing with the traditions of, of, of sending that person off, there's, there can be disruption in families in terms of, Who's getting what? And so in that aspect of it, those things I have written down so that, so hopefully it will not cause dissension in the family. You know what I mean? After, after I pass. But, but the actual thinking of death is something that, I don't know, makes my stomach upset. So at times, not all the times, but at times. 
lose the thing that book you described where in the woman that you were talking about who authored that book, you know, I actually wrote wrote down what you said in terms of thinking about death, uh, help us to live a better life. And I wrote that phrase down because and I'm gonna think about that because you know that may be true. You know, it may be a stumbling block for me that I'm I'm having a hard time getting over thinking about my own death. And and if I can do so, I guess, in, in a more healthy manner, um, I think it might allow me to get on with my life and not be at that stuck point. You know what I mean? So, so I again, this is another one of those... Uh, Topics that I don't know if, you know, I think some people can talk about it easily and others, like myself, it, it's a much harder topic to talk about. And, um, but that phrase, I, I wrote it down. I'm going to keep that, keep that with me and, and ruminate on that. I hear you. And just point of clarification, it's a TED Talk. The speaker is Alua Arthur. Her first name is spelled A-L-U-A. And her theme is why thinking about death helps you live a better life. Speaking of ruminate, <laughs> I don't know if there's a connection to the uh, the poet Rumi, but um, there's that Rumi quote, you know, yesterday I was clever, so I tried to change the world. Today I am wise, and so I try to change myself. I think um, w- one of the, especially as I think about the way that I grieve things, I grieve the loss of friendships, I grieve, we grieve the loss of relationships, you know, I, you know, we'll tell folks in our our Marius Couples Fellowship, and, and and I have experienced myself, you know, being, you know, sitting with therapist friends, you know, after a relationship, give yourself a year, right? Because if you try to jump into something else, you haven't kind of resettled to who you are now. Um, I think at, at at some point, you know, we we've gone through some family hardships that you all know about, and there's 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 grief in 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 the in the loss of family members, not necessarily to death, um, and. And the grief of moments that we don't get back because of certain traumas that we have encountered, you know, of you, you got to grieve all of those those things. And and I think one important shift here, Luz, that that you help invite here is this notion that grief is not something to like run from in my community in 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 the in the truest form in the traditional form of my cultural space because we take on the cultures of other places, um, but we didn't grieve in a way that said grief is this this big, huge, dark blanket that we got to avoid and run from at all costs. Grief was actually something that was going to come. It is a part of the whole. And and you have to do it because there's a shedding that happens with that grief. If I don't grieve somebody, meaning I I, I encounter the feelings of mourning, of of what has been lost and all of that, then I can't... um, then, then, then what purpose does the memory serve without being in the space with that person in the first place? If I can't go through a period of, of being like, man, that sucked, that's, a, that's, that's grief. You know, if, if I can't say that, then what am I truly saying to the person, if it's a person I'm grieving, uh, to the value of that person in my life? If I can't say it sucks to be without you, it sucks to, to, to not be in the good spaces or it sucks to not be even in the bad spaces. Sometimes I grieve even the worst conversations I had with family members I really have a struggle getting along with, right? Um, 
But there's there's exchange that was happening there. There's a, a a program that my wife and I are watching now called The Bear, and it's it's about an Italian family, in Chicago, uh, in an exchange in this kitchen at this restaurant. And I watch them. I watch. It's 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 kind of watching an entire family go through the grief of losing a brother, losing a member of that family, and how it comes out in the in the example of these chefs in this kitchen trying to keep this thing alive, partly because of memory, partly because of dreams and ideas. And we see what happens when we run from grief, when we try to avoid and mitigate grief and minimize it. We we are cutting off an important stage in the healing process is what I'm really trying to get to. And, and so, um, but sometimes in our dominant cultural space, Grief is presented to us as something to avoid because we never want to feel bad. We want to get through life never feeling bad, never having conflict, never doing any of the things that I actually think make us have the kind of bonds and relationships that are worth grieving. It's kind of a little weird cycle thing, but for me, the presence of grief means that there is something worth grieving, and that means that we have lived. And so there's that cycle that that comes for me. So cycle of life and the cycle of being, right? I We're going to shift gears from grief and from mourning to something that's a celebration. Um, I am, I've announced my retirement from my position as Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. And my effective date, um, fingers crossed that everything sh- uh, bears out the way we planned, is September 1st. Mm-hmm. And... Um, September 1st. And what prompted this? um, Congratulations, of course. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So there's a connection here. Uh, My sister's passing did prompt it. Um, She was not a high wage earner, but she saved so diligently with the goal of traveling. And unfortunately, her dream was not realized. It was cut short because of her battle with brain cancer. And between that, our financial planner and I just, the universe has been speaking to me for a number of months saying, you know, you need to get off the grind and uh, enjoy your life. So I'm excited about it. Uh, It is, um, feels very liberating and um, looking forward to spending more time with you good folks. Hey, congratulations. Congratulations. I I thank you for sharing that because I I think it's actually a good capstone to how I feel about grief in, in, in my community and family space and that in grief marks transition. And so, and that transition doesn't always have to be one of, of, of sadness and loss. Cause sometimes when we lose things, there's a whole lot of other things we gain and you are about to lose the, re, the, the responsibility of a nine to five and gain all of the freedom that that means to travel and do all kinds of other things. Um, I, do you have some ideas about like what you want to do with this this found time? I do. I um, prior to the pandemic, I was very active in the gym, lifting weights. Uh, so I'm I'm going to re, uh, you know, get back, restart that. So getting back, weightlifting, uh, improving my flexibility with stretches, uh, upping my game with my meditation practice. I do meditate three to four times a day, but short spurts. So I want to go for hours at a day, uh, hours at a time, uh, and I'm excited about that. Excited about um, getting back in my garden um, for longer periods of time, and then reading, doing a lot of reading, uh, catching up on some reading, uh, 
And then traveling, of course. Uh, right now we have a, a long trip planned for um, Spain, a three-week trip uh, in the fall. And then traveling to Chicago where uh, my nieces are, um, you know, the daughters of my, my sister, and spending time with them, spending time with other family members in Chicago, traveling with other family members. Um, yeah, I don't know that there'll be enough hours in the day to keep up with all my expectations <laughs> and things that I want to do um, and spending time with, with loved ones, of course. Um, so I'm excited. Thank you for asking. So we'll have two retired folks in our Counter Stories crew. And I don't know about you, yeah. but I, my jealousy meter is... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this today. Like, there is something to say about, like, um, the way, like, American capitalism and everything, how as we talk about grief, you know... Um, you get a couple of days off maybe after someone has passed, then you're back to the grind and, and it takes a while to grieve and that, and that's hard, right? Um, then you're stuck taking, you know, your sick days to, to do these sorts of things. Um, and also just like the idea that you have to work until you're 65 before, um, you can typically retire is like a long time part of your life. Um, and so, my goal would be, as, as as with you, lose to retire before then. But um, who knows? I guess for me and Anthony, we might we might not have that opportunity. Well, <laughs> see, that's <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have that opportunity, whether it was real or not. We gonna figure that out. Right? We gonna we gonna take care of this annuity and and make sure that that happens. But um, this this. I think it's apropos to our conversation today, too, as much as we talked about gathering, it used to be that um, whether you had what you needed to retire or not, that we were communal enough to be able to, um, you know, retire somebody into something else, some other part of, of connecting with the family. I, I can think of many a times where folks who had gotten old enough to retire but couldn't went into and, and worked at the family shop or, or you know, all the family chipped in and took care of them uh, for watching the babies and stuff like that. I spent many a time with some of my grandparents and great uncles and stuff like that growing up because, you know, some of them retired with some modest retirement, um, but it was supplemented by the way that we collectivize. And I actually see a ray of hope in that to, um, you know, follow loses kind of light and hopeful future kind of thing. Um, and I think I feel the same way about grief and that when we gather everything, you get a sense that everything's going to be all right. And I think there's a learning that people are starting to have because people are, are not just talking about the need to return to some of these gatherings and stuff like that. But in this day and age, I, I see people really working hard to try to put those things back together. And so for the first time in a long time, I'm seeing family reunions come back. I'm seeing folks start to do collective things together. Folks are starting in my family are starting to live together again and just share expenses and realize that, oh, yeah, we, you know, we can do something different. Um, and that's something that we used to have in the past. We didn't think about retiring with somebody going away. We thought about retiring. Oh, man, I need to build another wing on the house because so-and-so is going to be here. We're even thinking about that as we make an attempt to try to build a house. Like to to do that and with some family help and some family land and some saving and all that stuff. 
And on all of our thoughts is making sure that the main level has a space in case grandma needs to be with us, in case my mom needs to be with us, in case we need to be in that same space. And, and so there's a lot mm-hmm. more conversations that are shifting that direction. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's making, for some folks in our family, retirement possible, whether or not society does its job. So right. I'm, 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 I've got some, some, some hope in that regard for that. I appreciate that. And Haley, thanks for the reminder. I should clarify, it is an early retirement. I'm not yet at retirement age. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to be able I, I want to be able to highlight that as well. Uh, this has been Counter Stories, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've shared are strictly my own and should not be associated with my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendro's group. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendro's group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.